0: It is a privilege to be with you on this occasion. I want to take you back to the fall of 1620 when 102 uh, colonists sailed for the New World on a well-known sea vessel that we know as the Mayflower. These separatist Christians were fleeing from the Church of England and they were seeking for religious freedom. Ten years later, in 1630, another group would join the separatists in the New World. This group was known as the Puritans. During the Great Migration period of the 1630s came 21,000 English settlers to New England, made up of farmers, fishermen, merchants, lawyers, and entire families. At the heart of this movement was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as these families came off of the boats, One by one, they came off with one book in their hand, and it was the Bible. Specifically, the Geneva Bible. And the Geneva Bible was the first study Bible that we have on record in in English history, complete with study notes in the margins. And they came seeking for religious freedom, but also for the purpose of figuring out how to structure church order. How? By the Word of God. And they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ unashamedly standing upon the authority and the sufficiency of God's Word. And yet, as America grew, so did her churches. And yet, there would soon come a need for training, official training. And they would begin the university system. Take the founding of Yale and Harvard, for instance. Why were they founded, you say? For the training of ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what made America great back in those days? Well, it was the church in America that made America great. The church who stood upon the authority of God's Word. The church that preached the Bible. The church that proclaimed the gospel without apology. But things are changing today. In fact, things have been changing for quite some time. The winds have been blowing us off course. We are experiencing a great mission drift within evangelical circles. And as the church goes, so goes America. We are in a serious problem today in evangelical circles where we're seeing that many evangelicals are are replacing Christianity with this new religion, this, this new social justice type of movement. And today we have a massive lucrative machine that's storming the scene within evangelicalism. And you're fooling yourself if you don't think that America needs strong churches. But there's an intense struggle today to gain the upper hand regarding the voting block within evangelicalism. This last presidential election demonstrated that conservative evangelical votes do actually matter. So, how can you actually take the largest Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, along with other? conservative evangelical denominations like the PCA and others and shift them hard to the left from their once conservative roots and their conservative voting positions? And the answer is through social justice, through a methodology within this Marxist postmodern position and methodology known as intersectionality. Through intersectionality, many evangelicals have replaced theology with victimology. They have swapped pastors for sociologists. They have traded in their theologians for political activists. So what exactly is intersectionality? Intersectionality was originally coined in 1989 by Kimberly Crenshaw, a political activist and radical feminist. She was seeking to, in many ways, identify and aid the oppressed groups in America. In short, intersectionality, as it's been termed and coined, has been defined in such a way that evaluates a population by different segments, specifically class discrimination or what we might call victim groups. So the idea is to divide an entire population by their different victim categories, by ethnicity and gender and sexual orientation and class follow the idea of intersectionality, according to Crenshaw, a woman in America is oppressed simply because of the fact that she's a woman. But then if she happens to be a black woman in America, she is therefore uh, discriminated against and oppressed in two different victim categories. But you see, if she's a woman who is also black and also a lesbian, then now she's a member of three different victim groups. And at the very place where all of those layers intersect, a woman who is black and also a lesbian, at that very juncture is the greatest opportunity for her to be discriminated against and oppressed. And according to Crenshaw, that's at the very heart of who that individual is. So as you can imagine, this methodology gains massive sympathy points and political support, virtue signaling and the harnessing of emotions, are a key component to identity politics. The editorial board of the Wall Street Journal printed and pointed out this very problem in a recent editorial titled The Democrats' Identity Meltdown. The editor stated that the Democrats have quote, unleashed race, gender, sexual orientation, and class as the defining issues of American politics. So no longer can we simply be Republicans, individual Republicans, or individual Democrats who have ideas and positions and ideologies that we're passionate about. Now we have to be segmented into different categories. So now it's the white Republican male, red hat wearing, CPAC attending individual who is now opposing the black lesbian woman Democrat who is uh, standing for and promoting reproductive rights for women. Victim status is increased when a person can prove membership in multiple victim groups, resulting in greater degrees of discrimination. Now you can see why it is that Elizabeth Warren has been trying to identify as a Native American Indian. Because if she's simply a white woman from Oklahoma, that does not get near the attention as someone who is representing a victim category or a victim group. Although intersectionality was birthed out of a radical feminist postmodern political culture, it's now being used where? Within evangelical circles to describe and to aid and to figure out how to come to the aid of oppressed people who have been held back from advancement within churches and denominations. So today we actually have within the Southern Baptist Convention on a specific seminary campus a program. This designed to fast-track individuals to go through an education and then to get them to the mission field to, to, to actually increase the quota of what, you say, of individuals who have a, cert, a certain skin color. Now so we want to fast-track. Individuals through an education program and get them to the mission field, not based on their abilities, not based on their giftedness, but based upon what? Based upon their skin color. So what Kimberly Crenshaw was able to do successfully in the leftist world of the LGBTQA plus movement through intersectionality is now being employed within evangelical circles. So what's the point, you say? Well, it's about power and it's about control. And the world of politics is greatly involved in this process because, once again, as goes the church, so goes America. And if a certain party can gain the upper hand with social justice, then there's a massive voting block to be gained. Now consider, if you will, also the power of intersectionality. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said, quote, It's important that we don't ignore the power of identity because it is very powerful, she states, quote, especially for women, especially for the rage of women right now. Identity politics is extremely powerful. It's extremely lucrative, not only from a business standpoint and a religious standpoint, but also from a political standpoint. So watch the movement closely. Pay close attention to the language. Listen to the ideas that are being promoted. For instance, recently when introducing the Green New Deal on February 7th, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said these words, quote, as she comes before the news media, she says, today is a big day for people who have been left behind. Now, interestingly enough, that's not earth-shattering language, but that's code language, that's Marxist language, intersectionality code language you see when when standing before cameras she doesn't say this is a wonderful deal for we the people or for the American people instead she says for people who have been left behind in other words we're coming to your aid we're coming to help you we're we're, we're on your side you can't get there without us so how does all this work well first of all you must identify the crisis Victim groups have to be identified. Blame has to be assigned. And then second of all, you have to supply the solution. This would involve the redistribution of power and privilege. In the evangelical circles, it involves attaching woke to church, attaching social justice to the gospel, making progressive politics sexy, Not only do you need to identify the crisis and supply the solution, but you must, number three, deconstruct the hierarchy. You must unseat those who are in power. You must put people in power that will support the cause. So you can do what, you say? So that you can stay in control. Within the evangelical culture, coming on the heels of the Me Too movement has come also the Church Too movement. Major voices within conservative evangelical circles have been writing on the subject in blog articles and and, and through social media outlets. Russell Moore, the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, tweeted out the following. Quote, There would be no Southern Baptist Convention without Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong. That's not a bad thing, but that's not where he stopped. He went on to say, quote, We desperately need a resurgence of women's voices and women's leadership and women's empowerment again. It is way past time. Now notice the code language there, women's empowerment. Social justice, Marxism, intersectionality. You have to follow the language. In the same line of thinking, J.D. Greer, who serves as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention... Tweeting out to Beth Moore about her article that she wrote, which was titled, A Letter to My Brothers, where she charts oppression and discrimination, J.D. Greer tweeted out these words, "...thank you, Beth, hoping that we are entering a new era where we in the complementarian world take all the Word of God seriously, not just the parts about distinction of roles, but also the tearing down of all hierarchy." and His gracious distribution of gifts to all His children. Do you notice that tearing down of the hierarchy? Identify the crisis. Supply the solution. Deconstruct the hierarchy. And number four, control the narrative. Control the story. So as to never stop controlling the narrative. In other words... This idea of social justice, people have asked over the last several months, myself and Tom Askell and others, what is the end goal of social justice? Well, here's the answer. There is no end goal to social justice. If you ever arrive at the destination, then the train stops and those in power have now been unseated. These questions are extremely important. And as we think about not only evangelicalism, but also how we do life in America, such as big government or small government, a wall or no wall, open borders or controlled borders, loose immigration or controlled immigration, is animal life deserving of the same sanctity as human life, reproductive freedom, or end abortion now? And should we allow for men to identify as women so that they can dominate track meets, and MMA contests, and wrestling matches? These questions and many more are being influenced by what we know as social justice and with the methodology known as intersectionality. So why must we stand in opposition to this machine? J.C. Ryle, this great theologian of church history, stated the following... Whenever a man takes upon him to make additions to the Scriptures, he is likely to end up valuing his own additions above Scripture itself. We must remember that when those colonists came off of the boat, they came with a Bible in their hand. They believed the Bible. They stood upon the Scripture. They preached the Gospel. Yet today, we're turning to Ideas and methods of social justice and intersectionality. Have we lost confidence in the Word of the living God? The only way for America to be great, truly great, I believe, is for America's churches to be great. And the only way for America's churches to be great is for America's churches to actually believe and to preach and to stand upon the Word of God. And make no mistake about it that conservative politicians need for America's churches to be great again. That's why intersectionality is such a dangerous monster, a political cancer that must be opposed, must be challenged, it must be defeated. So we must stand up. We must speak up. And we must actually win this battle against this machine that's systematically deconstructing our great churches and our great nation. We must remember that the devil always plays for keeps. Always. The devil isn't playing a video game. He's playing for keeps. But there's far more at stake than a voting block. It's not just about statues being removed. It's about souls being damned. It's not just about a voting block shifting to the left. It's about civilization as we know it being destroyed. The liberals want our great nation. The devil wants our souls. And civilization as we know it is under intense attack. We are in serious trouble in our churches, in our denominations, and in this great nation that we call America. So the question remains, what will you do about it? Don't just sit there and surf social media about social justice. Stand up, speak up, and do something. God has already blessed America. We pray that God would bless America again. Never forget this one truth. God doesn't need America, but America needs God. May God bless you.